It is good. I don't know about you, but uh, I think I think it's natural and common to aspire to greatness in some way. Maybe as a as a kid, you dreamed of hitting the winning shot or accomplishing or or obtaining something or achieving a position or doing a heroic deed. Like you had that recurring dream where you just ran into the burning burning building and saved people, and uh, you're like, yeah, that'd be cool, you know. Uh, or being recognized universally for your success, some some sort of exploit, something that you've done that that people would say, wow, that guy's accomplished something or done something, or you felt like you had done something. And a lot of those aspirations, they do find their basis in the love of self and the promotion of self. And, and even after we're born again, our motives can be self-serving and wanting to do a great thing. And as we realize what God's done and, and what he's given us, and we begin to see needs around us and in the world, we do desire to be used by God and to do something great for him. And the way that the world measures greatness and the way God measures it are quite different. Where the world values titles and um, money or fame, but God, he values the soul that humbles its himself before God, the one who is contrite before him. That's the one that God says, that's the one that I'm going to look at. That's the one who's going to have my attention. And the one who denies their flesh in a secret matter only known to God is of greater glory in God's sight than the Nobel Peace Prize winner, where the world says, see, this is the person, or the Australian of the year, or whatever um, accolade you might desire or value. God values things differently. So it's not the rich, it's not the wise, it's not the strong of this world, but those whose God is the Lord, who have his glory upon them. Those are the great ones, the humble ones. Right? Jesus, he's the greatest, and he humbled himself, made himself a servant. So we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 2, if you'll turn there. And because we've had a a week off, I suppose, it seems like a lot longer. But uh, just to bring us back up to speed, Nehemiah was a Jew. He had the influential role as cupbearer in the courts of the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes. After 70 years of captivity, Zerubbabel... He led a group back to Israel and built the temple. There was uh, 57 years later, the priest Ezra went, and he brought a, a small group of people with him, and he went to teach the people. He taught them the ways of God. And then Nehemiah in 444 B.C., he was deeply impacted by the terrible case when he heard this bad report of what was going on in Jerusalem, how the people were in affliction, they were reproached how the walls and the gates were broken. They were burned with fire. And for a hundred years, the people had remained in this condition. Living in poverty, they had no security. They couldn't control what came in and what came out. They, their wealth had been plundered. And so Nehemiah, he's this wealthy eunuch in the, in the presence of a king. And when he heard this bad report about what was happening in Jerusalem and the people and how they were suffering, his heart just broke for them. And for four months, he prayed and fasted and sought God's counsel on what he should do. And uh, it's neat that, that God touched a man who had access to influence in, in a place of wealth where he could have been very comfortable with his life and thought he had achieved great things as a slave who is now promoted to be a cupbearer, but his heart was for God and for his people. And we see that his character was more than just prayer sympathy, but a man of courage, a man of action. And he sought the Lord and the help of others to accomplish a great work for God. And we're going to be reading about that in the upcoming weeks. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for the example of Nehemiah. Thank you for all the, the great saints in your scriptures that were faithful to you and who trusted you in the midst of difficulty and how they overcame. And Lord, you promise that we are more than overcomers through Christ who is our King and our God. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to apply this to our lives, to take from it the things you would have for each one, and that you would minister, Lord. Give us great confidence in you and in your ability to do what's impossible so that you would be praised in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah 2, starting in verse 1. 
And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This chapter begins with a date that shows us he had been praying and fasting for four months where there's this grave situation and there would have been a a temptation for him to seek the presence of the king, but instead he goes to the king of kings and he prays and he seeks the Lord and he doesn't just frantically do what he thinks he knows to be best, but he brings, there's wine set before the king as a cupbearer. His job was to ensure it was drinkable, that it wasn't poisoned. So that would be a pretty interesting job, you know, where any day someone could have spiked that wine and you could be dead. But this was his job. And he was uh, a loyal advisor to the king, a trusted person. I mean, the king's life was in his hands. If you want to get to the king, you get to his cupbearer and the king can fall easily. So it was important that he be loyal. And for the first time ever, he notices that he's pretty depressed. He's like, hey, you're not sick and you're really sad. What's going on? It was illegal to be sad in the king's presence. You were not allowed to, in the, in the Persian courts, to wear uh, sackcloth inside. It says in Esther 2. It was the death sentence because it's like, this is the king. In his presence, you're supposed to light up. All your problems are supposed to go away. And if you're sad and you're depressed in his presence, what's going on with you? And so, you know, these guys were pretty disposable. But he doesn't suspect Nehemiah's character as being disloyal or that there's a plot going on or something's amiss. But he asks him, what's going on? He doesn't take it as a personal insult. And so Nehemiah says, I was afraid. He had been able to conceal his feelings until then. But he answered the king saying, may the king live forever. I'm not displeased with my job. I'm not disloyal to you, but realize that I'm, I'm struggling because the place where my fathers were buried, its gates are burned with fire. Its walls are broken down. It's a reproach. It's a terrible state. He doesn't dodge the question, but he answers wisely. He doesn't mention the name Jerusalem because Jerusalem uh, had a bad reputation as being a rebellious city. Kind of, they do their own thing over there. They have a different God. And he doesn't, he doesn't dodge it. He says, Judah, he'll say. But he, uh, he had been long in prayer. And when the king said, what do you request? What do you need? How can I help? He sends a quick prayer. He breathed out a prayer to God. I love that prayers, he prayed for four months, but prayers don't have to be long to be heard or be effective. He prays to God like, Lord, help me. And he pours out his, his petition. Prayer is more than just pouring out our cares upon the Lord, but receiving guidance and instruction, direction. Nehemiah had this. We should ask specific questions to God and wait for a specific answer. And the Lord showed me that I don't do this nearly enough. A lot of times I'm content to just dump and talk about maybe things that are hard or hurtful, um, but I don't necessarily ask him for guidance. I don't ask him for specific steps to take, like what should I do next? I can be content to just kind of, all right, I'm fine, and just move on. But we should be asking the Lord, like what should I do? Okay, their gates are burned with fire. What would you have me do about that, Lord? I am a cupbearer in Persia. Here I am in Shushan. How can I make a difference? Surely there's plenty of people that you've moved I mean, there was Zerubbabel, there was Ezra. Those walls are still on the ground. What could I do? He waited on the Lord, and he sought the Lord even at that moment to know what to say. And this is what he says in verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. 
It's amazing how Nehemiah submits himself to the authority of his king. If He says, if it pleases the king, I ask that you send me to go because I intend to rebuild this city. I'm impressed how he takes initiative to do this, and yet he retains his humility before God and man. When we take initiative, sometimes it's coupled with arrogance and almost withdrawing yourself from authority, saying, well, I have this calling, and I have this, and I'm going to do it, with or without you, regardless if you agree or not. But instead, he goes to the king and says, if it pleases you, you send me, and then I'll do this thing. I don't believe as a cupbearer he was experienced in building cities, gates, walls, governing building projects. This isn't really his field of expertise, but his confidence was in God, that God would help him to do something that had not been done for over a 100 years. This was likely a private discussion because it says the queen was also sitting with him. This was a bit out of the ordinary. The king would usually eat alone. Remember in the case with Esther and Ahasuerus, she hadn't been called to be with him in any way for a month. And she appeared before him and had a banquet of wine. So we see this was, uh, this was a, a unique experience that the king and queen would be together. And uh, it's also suggestive that he is a eunuch, that he had that sort of access to the king and queen. He seems to be very prepared on what to say. He knows how, what he's going to need. He knows how long he's going to be away. And he says, at the king's quest, request, I gave him a time. He gave him a timetable. Verse 7, furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So God's hand is through this whole situation through this whole conversation and he has a plan of what he's going to need he says i'll need a visa basically i need letters to show to all the governors that i must be permitted to pass through on your authority and i also want a letter that's written to asaph the king of the forest or the the leader of the forest what is that the keeper of forest sorry to build the gates and to build the house that i'm going to be living in while i'm doing the work in the Enduring Word commentary, uh, Pastor David Guzik, he quotes Proverbs 21.5, The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. So he has a plan. His plan came from the Lord. It wasn't his own idea. He exhibited great patience. And uh, in the commentary, it also says, I thought this was interesting. It says, Faith is no substitute for planning. We aren't more spiritual for failing to plan and for shooting from the hip. There may be some times when we simply can't plan, but we should never reject planning. I think it's very wise that there is a place for a plan. I say, well, I'm following the Lord, and therefore I have no plan. Well, our plan should be to follow the Lord and to do the next step that he places before us. Think about David, for instance. Before he went to face Goliath, he expected that he would win, he, he said to Goliath, I'm going to cut your head off. Uh, and he didn't even own a sword at the time. But before he did any of that, he had gone before King Saul. And he sought his blessing upon him meeting him in combat. And though the armor that Saul provided for him did not fit, he went with a sling and he picked up stones from the brook before he met him in battle. So though God was uh, prompted him to face that giant, the one who spoke blasphemy against God and his people, there was still a bit of a plan and a submission to the authority of a king, a king who would later chase him down and try to kill him. So there's that mix, right, of following God and being prepared as much as you can. Because when we, when we strike out in faith, there will be uncertainty, there will be unknowns. We may not have a, a five or a ten-year plan about how things are going to go. And, and if you've ever made one, you could tell me how that worked out for you. Things happen in life. There's a lot of unexpected things. 
the Bible says that some are ever learning but never coming to the truth. Some people can be ever planning but failing to act. So there's that point of planning is good, but you must strike out in faith. And so Nehemiah is willing to do that with the blessing of God and his king. Verse 9, Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Nehemiah took the shorter route to go to Jerusalem. It took about two, maybe three months. Based upon the time further as we read how long it took them to complete the wall and what date that was. So if you put the dates together, it's about two to three months. And he sent him with a military escort. So he has he has more than what he asked for. He asked for the letters. He asked for access to the forest. But he also has this military export, uh, you know, escort. And now we're introduced to men who will be mentioned throughout this book, enemies who oppose the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. So Sanballat is believed to be a Moabite because he is from the city of Horonium, which is a principal city of Moab. We read of that in Isaiah 15.5. And the Ammonites and the Moabites were descendants of Lot. It's written in the law of Deuteronomy 23.3, An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because of the way they had treated those people groups had treated God's people when they came out of Egypt. These men were wolves, certainly seeking to scatter the flock. Uh, Sanballat was the Persian-appointed governor of Samaria. That's to the north of Israel. Perhaps he had designs upon controlling that lower area as well. Tobiah, it's a Jewish name. We'll see later that he has connections to the priesthood through marriage, but he should not have had those connections. His name means goodness of Jehovah, but he was anything but from good or uh, godly in his conduct. And it says they were deeply disturbed that anyone would want to seek the good of God's people. So this is a good indicator of the angle that they have, their agenda. Notice that we do not read of any opposition to Nehemiah's plans when he was praying, when he was planning in the courts of Shushan, but it's when he arrived in Jerusalem where all of a sudden there's this opposition. He had not made his intentions public yet, as we'll see. He hadn't told anyone really the reason why he was going. Active opposition will come when we mobilize. It's not often in the praying stage or the planning stage, but when we actually begin to do something where we will find opposition. I experienced this firsthand when I came to Australia in 2009. I had fasted, I had prayed, I had sought the Lord, I had resigned from my position and planned for a two-month trip up in Brisbane to connect with the church there. Everything had been very positive. Um, I was going to just assist with the work. I wasn't coming over to anything. Uh, there was no contract or any plan besides, I'll just help you uh, in, in doing the church stuff. Well, I arrived on 23 September 2009. Now, does anyone remember what was happening then? I had a little, I was like, I want to make sure this is right. And I looked in my passport. And lo and behold, I do see right there. 23 September, that was the middle day of the Sydney dust storm. And the pastor happened to be in Sydney at the time, and he could not fly out. And so he said, well, I'm not able to meet you at the airport. I have a family that's going to come pick you up. Okay, cool. So they picked me up. And then after the dust storm, it seemed like he really didn't want to talk at all. Like he didn't want to meet, he didn't want to talk. It was definitely a changed condition than what we had discussed on the phone. 
And it seemed like obstacles and difficulties were popping up everywhere, where within a week or two, the church was disbanded, completely gone. So it's like, okay, this is really wild. The Lord had prepared me for a bit of a wilderness experience, but I didn't quite expect this. Um, But it was through that happening that I was connected with Pastor Andrew Russell in Melbourne, who connected me with this fellowship here, and I was able to travel through and preach one time. So little did I know that little baby step of faith to come to Australia met with opposition right from the beginning that he would cause that to be the beginning stages of us moving to Australia and becoming Australian citizens, which is more than what I could have ever dreamed at the time. And to to know and to worship the Lord with you is a great privilege and really the joy of my life. So that's what happens. You decide to finally step out, and there will be opposition. That will happen. There are some who are not happy that we would seek the good of God's people. But praise the Lord, he does beyond what we could ever ask or think. So Nehemiah 2, verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor were there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates were burned with fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Nehemiah doesn't ride into Jerusalem and immediately have a press conference about what his plans are, his connections, or say, well, guys, try to find favor with them by saying, I'm really here to help you rebuild this wall. And then that would make people like him. He doesn't say that. He's just there as a Persian cupbearer. You know, he's a Jewish man who's a cupbearer, and he's there visiting. And he's there with a military attachment. They have no understanding of why he's there exactly. But for three days, he surveys the walls, and at night, he sneaks out to do some extra recognizance. So he's reconnaissance. So he's looking at them. He's getting a better look at the situation. And I'm really impressed by his knowledge of the city, a city that he's never been to, a city that he's never lived in. He knows what gate is what. He knows where the pool is. He knows this and that. And the only way he could know that is by talking to the people who were there. And so he's he's discussing things with, and who does it say? The officials, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, those who did the work. So he's had opportunities to talk to all these people and to lay out his plan or his vision, but he keeps it quiet as he looks around, he examines, and begins to formulate a plan. And he says, at some points, there was so much rubbish, there was so much debris, I had to dismount my animal to get through. So it was really difficult to just move around in the area where he's going to be wanting to build. And it was the last sentence in verse 16 that caught my attention. It says, Nehemiah did not tell others who did the work, what he had done. This suggests that there were workers in the city who were either working on the wall or who would be working on the wall. A wall that had not been adequately clear of debris, and it had been like that for a hundred years. That teaches me that When we go into a place where there's a work to be done, there are already workers who are working but need leadership and guidance to accomplish that thing. Like God had sovereignly intended that he would use a cupbearer from a Persian court to use the the resources supplied by King Artaxerxes to build this wall in Jerusalem so his he would no longer be suffering reproach. The work did not start with Nehemiah. It did not end with Nehemiah. Nehemiah was an important tool that God used, 
But there were there was already work going on there. And then Nehemiah came. And after Nehemiah, there was still work to be done. That is really encouraging. Because God's work does not depend upon our efforts or our vision or our abilities. He is working. God is working. And he's looking for workers who will be faithful and obedient to him. Because God's able to accomplish great deeds through anyone. What we would consider a great deed. We can unite with other people to accomplish God's purposes. When you talk about clearing away rubbish, moving stones, hauling timber, digging, these are not glorious jobs. These are not the people who make the big bucks, the people that are famous in the world. These are the relatively unknown menial workers. But even these menial tasks can bring God great glory. And we can idolize the great work and forget that we serve actually a great God who is worthy of the smallest labors. Not just the ones that men consider like, ooh, impressive. You know, hanging gardens and look at those stones. Look at the size of those. That must have taken some work. The work that we enter into, it has been prayed for. It has been desired. It has been long considered before we ever came into the picture. And it's good that God does that. He brings us and gives us vineyards that we didn't plant and, and houses that we didn't build. And um, he, He's the one who supplied all of our needs. And I'm glad that God's vision and plans are greater than my wildest dreams, like his plans that are actually going to happen, much greater than my fantasy about what God should do or could do through my life or through yours or through ours as we serve him together. Nehemiah avoided the trap of boasting. He demonstrates faith. He's surveying the city, not just coming in and saying, I know what needs to be done. I have a calling upon my life. He comes in and he takes a look around and he doesn't say anything. He doesn't have to. That will come. It's good for us to have that approach that's written about in James chapter 4. If you want to turn there, James 4 verse 13. It's an interesting conclusion that James comes to in this passage. James chapter 4, 13. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Nehemiah doesn't boast about what he planned to accomplish, what they were going to do together. He doesn't brag about his access to the king or the the access to wealth that he has. The resources available to him, he's dependent upon God, therefore unassuming. Uh, he's unswayed by satanic opposition, or he, and he's not at the mercy of man's approval because he's there to serve God. And it's a fair question that James asks. He says, for what is your life? You're boasting about this and that, but what is your life? And it's good for us to think about, what is my life? You know, what is it worth? I guess you could put a dollar amount on it, but really, that we have souls that are eternal, given us by God. A life that's meant to be lived for him. So are we, is that matching up uh, with whatever he's telling us to do? I like that. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live. Sometimes we forget about that. Like, my life depends on God helping me live. (laughs) I make these plans, but he's like, I'm going to live, number one. And number two, I'm going to do this or do that. Like, if God wills. I realize that my life is not my own, that I can't just assume that I have tomorrow, but we all do to some extent. When you think of a building project, they're fun in one sense because you get to see tangible results. Even if it's demolition, there was something standing, you've now knocked it down. You've hauled it away, and you can go, see? You know, it's never going to be built again. 
So you feel like you've accomplished something, but serving and working in the kingdom of God is a bit different because there's no guarantee. I planted plenty of seeds in real life that have never grown. Uh, you know, you try to fix the burnt spot on your lawn and you seed it and you put down the, you water it, you make sure it's right and it just keeps, it doesn't grow. And you're like, ah, it gets a bit frustrating. Or things grow that you don't want to grow, like on my rose bushes. It's like these tap roots keep, I mean, the little taps keep coming up and I'm cutting them off all the time and trying to get them right. And then lo and behold, there they are again. It's like, ah, oh, the things I don't want to grow are growing like crazy. And the things I want to grow, they're struggling sometimes. So you may not see an immediate harvest of your efforts in the kingdom of God. You can give someone the good seed of his word. It may fall on good ground and it may not. But we're to trust the Lord, trust the gospel, and trust that he will bring it to pass in his time. So we don't have to rush. We don't have to worry. With eyes of faith, we can be assured that this work is profitable. It is fruitful. God has willed it, and we can continue in it. Verse 17, back in Nehemiah chapter 2. Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. Do you see how Nehemiah doesn't chasten the workers for their inefficiency or their inability? Like, guys, how long has this been going on? I mean, this wall has been a disgrace, like, your whole lifetime. Why don't you get your act together and do something about it? He doesn't come in with that attitude. And he doesn't tell them what they need to do. He doesn't start barking orders at them. Hey, you know, you guys, you should be doing this, and you should be doing that. Why haven't you done this? He doesn't go that route at all, but he says, you see the distress that we are in. He joins himself in their distress. He doesn't come from it from the outside. He sees himself as one of them. Like, we are in this distress together, and can he not rightly say that? When he has fasted, he has prayed, he has wept over those broken walls. He has been there with them in his heart. And now he sees it firsthand. He says, this is awful. We can't live like this anymore. We can't be distressed like this anymore. He felt their pain. He joins with them. Matthew Henry, he observes, he did not undertake to do the work without them, nor did he charge or command imperiously Though he had the king's commission, but in a friendly, brotherly way, he exhorted and excited them to join with him in this work. He says, come on, let's build this wall. Let's do it. He was going to put his shoulder to the burden. He was going to invest his life in seeing Jerusalem restored. And he encourages them with stories. He says, hey, God brought this to my attention he spoke to me in prayer when I went before the king. I mean, I could have been killed because I was sad in his presence, but he wasn't insulted at all. I mean, I've seen him do other things in times past, but he had mercy on me and he asked me what I would do. I didn't have to request anything. He sought my counsel. And then he gave me these letters and he gave me access to the forests and I've got all these resources at, at our disposal. Let's do this. And they're like, all right. Let's do it. Like, we're ready. We've been working, but we haven't really been working on the wall. We haven't been all focusing our efforts on one thing. We've been kind of just doing whatever. You know, I've been building this, and I've been trying to fix that thing, but we just never really thought that we could do this job. It's such a big one. And it's so long undone that it seems impossible that we could do it. Us, I mean us, when Zerubbabel didn't do it, and Ezra couldn't do it, and Sambalot and Tobiah are out there, and they've got that sharp pen, just ready to write letters and petitions and make our lives miserable. But now here comes this cupbearer from Persia, and the Lord has put a desire in his heart to see this work done. And let's not forget Zerubbabel nor Ezra, faithful men called by God, to go to Jerusalem, 
They were not able to build the wall. Two mistakes Nehemiah did not make was to fault them when God had not purposed for them to do this work. God had purposes for them to accomplish. His per- if, if, they, if he wanted them to build the wall, they could have built the wall. They would have built the wall. But God had that for Nehemiah to do. Another mistake would have been to imagine that the building of the wall depended on his skill or ability. Like, ah, now you've got the right man at the controls. Now we can actually get some work done because I'm here. He doesn't do that. The truth remains that for a hundred years, people who wanted to see the wall built, people who had skill to build, people who prayed that it would be built, people who desired for it to be built, people who tried to build it, all their efforts, they failed till that point. And the city was reproached. The people were in continual affliction because of it. But just because it had not been done before did not mean that God was incapable of doing it through them. And that's very encouraging for us. Because there can be things in our lives where we think, I've long struggled with this issue. There's been this self-control thing. There's something I've really wanted to overcome, but I found it impossible to deal with, whether it's, uh, you know, a temper that controls me, habitual worry or an addiction or depression, countless things. And, and we've come to a point where we don't really see the purpose of working to overcome the thing because it's such a long-standing issue. And we learn to cohabitate with it and just to assume that it's just part of what life is going to be like. And that's a lot how the people in Jerusalem were. When they haven't had a wall for so long, they couldn't really imagine what it would be like having a wall and all that that would mean. There were, we'll read that there, were, there was piles of rubbish all around to the point where you couldn't build anything because there was no clear spot to actually start building. And that was the first step. They had to clear that rubbish away. And we can be like the Jews, we're just eking out a living, we're just tolerating and cohabitating with something instead of working with God to overcome. So let me be to you as Nehemiah was to those afflicted Jews in Jerusalem. It's not by might, it's not by your efforts, it's not by your willpower or resolve, but it's by His Spirit you will overcome. Those mountains that loom in front of you, impassable mountains, can become a plain easily crossed by the Spirit of God. He is able to do what we cannot do, despite our efforts or desire. God can help us clear the rubbish and build our lives again. It was one thing for Nehemiah to want to build the walls, to be well-resourced to build the walls, But it wasn't possible until everyone else agreed that they were going to do it too. He needed them, and they needed him. They all needed God and each other to accomplish this work. You might just go, oh, you know what? I've got some military guys. They're going to take off their uniforms, and they're going to do it. Because you guys clearly aren't getting the picture. No. they, their His heart was moved. Their hearts were moved. They united together in the Lord to accomplish it. And may our hearts unite together to do God's will for our church, for in our lives. So Nehemiah 2, verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Once they decide they're going to build, the news reaches Sanballat and Tobiah. I'm sure they had their minions everywhere, their ears and eyes that were reporting to them what was going on in Jerusalem. And at first, their response was to laugh at them, to mock them, like it was a joke. Oh my goodness, really? But then when they found out it wasn't a joke and they were actually serious, it says that they hated them for it. They despised them. They they questioned their intentions and they... They doubted their resolve. They said, well, what do you guys think you're doing? How, how can you do this? 
in a later point, it says, these feeble Jews, you know, you guys have no strength. How can you build this wall? And then they slander them. They say, are you rebelling against the king? Well, they had the king's blessing, but they're being slandered as rebellious for trying to do this work. And Nehemiah, as he does, he rebukes those who scorned them. He says, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. As servants of God, they had respect to the king Artaxerxes, but and they would use those resources, but they realized it was God himself who was going to prosper them. He was going to help them. Greater is the God who was for them than all who mocked or oppressed them. All who opposed them, they were as nothing because they had God to help them. And what confidence we see in him and what confidence we can have in our God to give us the strength and ability and the resources to accomplish impossible things for his glory. And, and Nehemiah doesn't wave the letters, you know, like, let me remind you that I have, I am here on the authority of Artaxerxes and, you know, I, I'll write another letter to prove to you. Like, he doesn't go that route. He says, God's going to be with us. God is going to help us. They weren't distracted or discouraged by opponents. They said, we're going to get up. We're going to arise and build. It's hard to build when you haven't arisen. Right? It's hard to build uh, when you're sitting on the lounge. If you're going to build something, it's going to require movement. It's going to require mobility. It will take us getting up from where we are and going to a different place, doing something differently. And so they do. They arise and they built. And he says, we will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. So Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, they have no historical ties. They had no rightful claim upon Jerusalem. They had no future claim. It wasn't their land. At the same time, they have no problem trying to oppose what God is going to do there, what the people sought to accomplish. And as we seek to labor to follow the Lord, there will be people, well-meaning people and mean-spirited people who will oppose that in different ways. I remember, uh, what was it? It was a story of, of a woman who believed God, forgetting her name, she was a Canadian woman who believed God had called her to a mission. And her mother said, you'll go over my dead body. You know, like, you're not going because I'll not have my child living on people's donations. That was just a great shame to her that she would she would uh, live in that way. Like, no daughter of mine is going to live that life where you're dependent on other people, dependent on the Lord to supply your needs. Isabel Kuhn is her name. Know that when God puts it on your heart to do something, there will be opposition, and there will be sometimes closed doors. But God, he's in it. He will open that door. And Nehemiah didn't need the stamp of approval of Geshem or Tobiah or Sanballat. He had God. He didn't have to trouble himself with their opposition or their hatred. because. And, but sometimes those things can get to us where someone is... They just say something that, that cuts, that hurts. And uh, that's something we can just say, you know, the Lord will deal with this. And to, to tell God that it hurt. <laughs> and to say, Lord, uh, help me to forgive. And you do the healing. When we think of a great work, what do you think of? A great work for God. Maybe you think of a, a world-famous ministry or renting out ANZ Stadium for a revival or or being known as a church that's sending out church planters all over the world. I'm convinced that the greatest work God does is that first work he does in our hearts to make us born again. That work has to happen before we can do any other work for God. It's the work inside of you that is the great work that God does. He justifies us. He sanctifies us by the gospel. 
And there's this work he continues to do, transforming us and changing us out of this old life, clearing up the rubbish and building uh, a new life on the foundation of Jesus Christ, where we are transformed in this work inside of us. It's not a glamorous work. It's not going to attract, um, you know, interviews from the ABC or Channel 7 or Channel 9 where they say, hey, you've overcome your addiction. How did you do that? That's really amazing. Or, or you used to have a terrible temper and you used to hit the dog and, and, or you used to just be at the pokies all the time. What happened? Tell us your secret. Like, this guy's amazing. That's not going to happen. The world, they're on to the next thing. They want, they're, they're looking at something else that's more glamorous. But the work that God wants to do inside of you to transform and change you, like, you know, the, there was a woman who used to worry all the time. But now she has peace. She has rest and confidence in God. That is not going to be on the front page of your newspaper anytime soon. But know that God is going to do a work in your heart if you will have him, if you desire him. We have a heritage, we have a right, and we have a memorial in our God. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. All those things are yours as a child of God. Check this out. In John 1, verse 12 and 13, it says, But as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Sometimes we think a great work has to be has to be well known for it to be great. But know that God wants to do a great work within you that no one else may even know about. But you know, and he knows. I read this morning when the Spirit of God uh, consumed with fire the sacrifice in the tabernacle for the first time. The people, it says like fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the, the, the sacrifice on the altar. And everyone shouted and just fell on their faces before the Lord. There was no like debate over, had something really happened there? You know, theologically, does this work? Uh, some skeptics are like, well, was there like a gas burner underneath that? We're not really sure. They were all sure they had met with God. And I pray that we know that we have met with God and he has met with us. And that we have, by his grace, the right to become the children of God through Jesus Christ. We have a right with him. All by grace. We don't deserve it. Sacrifices offered by the Jews, they were a memorial unto the Lord. We are now living sacrifices unto the Lord. We have a memorial with him. It was revealed to the devout centurion Cornelius in Acts 10.4. It said, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. It's like when we do something for God, it could be a little thing. In the world's eyes, that you would give money to a poor person. That doesn't make the news. But it came up as a memento that God treasured in heaven. It says, your alms, your prayers going into your prayer closet when no one else knows that you're praying, it's come up before me as a memorial. We have a memorial with our God. So I have a point of application. If you could turn to Proverbs 25, 28. On this theme of God doing this great work within each one of us. We've learned that without those walls, Jerusalem suffered Constant affliction and reproach. The people of Jerusalem did. And that situation, that picture that we have of a city without walls or gates, it's described in Proverbs 25, 28, as true in the lives of many people. It says in Proverbs 25, 28, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. So someone without self-control is like a city broken down without walls, suffering constant reproach, having no control over what's coming in through those broken gates, no way to shut them, and having no ability to to keep what's treasured within because it just goes out. There's no prevention. It's kind of like uh, we, it can be true of us physically, uh, like how much we eat or drink. 
right? We, have, we may have little self-control in that area. Or our words that go out of us. We use cutting words or harsh words or, or gossip or slander, boasting. These things just come out of us and we can't help it. But God wants, understand, he's given us his Holy Spirit if we're born again. And self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And this is his will for our lives, that we would have those walls and gates, the gates of our mouths and the walls of our hearts. We would guard our hearts. We would guard our eyes. We would guard the things that we say, that even our thoughts would be brought in uh, obedience to Christ. So I just want to uh, read Galatians 5, 22 through 26. We read of our right and inheritance as a child of God to live a life in submission to God. So, yeah, let's turn there. You guys are right on it. I do like the sound of the pages turning. It's a better indication than uh, the silent swiping on the phones. It's hard for me to know. So Galatians 5:22 through 26. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Nehemiah did not seek to provoke Tobiah and Sambalot. They were provoked because they didn't want good to come to the people of God. But Nehemiah, he set a guard over his heart. He set a guard over his lips. And he, he spoke words that were edifying and that were true. And he knew who had a right or a memorial or a heritage in Jerusalem. Sometimes we can suffer because of trials God has sovereignly ordained to refine us. Other times we suffer because of the consequences of our sin, because we've made decisions and we're now living with the, the repercussions of that. In a sense, everyone who was living in Jerusalem, they inherited a problem. It wasn't their fault that the walls were broken. It wasn't really their fault, in a sense, that the walls weren't cleared or built yet. God would have that accomplished in his time. And in a way, we've, we could blame mom or dad for our temper or our lack of self-control in an area. But really, we've all inherited a sinful nature. And we need the power of God to help do what we cannot do ourselves. And by his spirit, he does this. Let's be like Nehemiah, seeking the Lord in prayer, being grieved over that situation, over that, that sin or that lack of self-control. In the areas where God's revealed to us, and if you want to do a great work for God, know that he wants to do this great work in you today. God wants to do great work, and he allows us to partner with him in that. It's like Nehemiah couldn't do it by himself. God wants to transform us, but we have to be in agreement with him and say, yep, it's time to get up and build. It's time to get up and do something for the Lord because he's the one who's guiding me. It's all his resources. He's going to protect us, and he will see it done. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, for the truth of it. And I pray that we would be uh, submitting to the great work you want to do in each one of our hearts. That we would put aside all selfish ambition and uh, conceit, thinking that we can do anything on our own. But look to you, Lord, to sustain us, to help us, to protect us, and to offer us those resources that are required to have self-control to have a heart and a mind that's purified and useful for your kingdom. We love you, Lord, and thank you again for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.